Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Thursday this week at 10.30 a.m., January 25th. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello. And Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Hello. So, no special guests this week, but plenty of news. The government shutdown is over for now. And with the reopening in the government came six years of funding for the Children's Health Insurance Program. How on earth did that happen? Very fast. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I mean, we, you know, last we were we were fighting uh, tooth and nail about how to pay for it. As we as we pointed out last week, um, there had been there had not been a policy dispute that the House and the Senate and the Democrats and the Republicans had agreed quite a few months ago on a five year fix. This ended up being six years. And they had a fight about how to pay for it because, of course, Obamacare money ended up as part of that fight. Not the only aspect. And Medicare money. And Medicare, right. So it became just it, it became one of these beyond classic Washington things where they couldn't fix something they agreed on. Um, and it became a crisis for the states. Anyone who listens to us has, has known this. It became it, it became more and more anxiety-producing for the families who rely on it and for the officials in the states who had to run it. It really became, and for the providers, it just became a scary mess that really didn't have to be. Then the CBO... Um, uh, came out with a new score saying it's basically free, um, so they couldn't fight about paying for it anymore. I think um, Senator Hatch's announcement that he was going to retire at the end of this year also sort of gave it a little bit more oomph to get it because he, he takes pride of authorship. He did help create it. That helped a little bit. I think they sort of just maybe got bored with fighting about it, well, too. Well, but then they, then they stuck it in the in the, the well, spending bill to try and sort of fake out the Democrats. But yeah, sure. I think yeah. It, became, it became a sort of a cudgel to beat the Democrats who wanted to vote against the spending bill because it did nothing to protect DACA recipients who are going to be at, at risk of deportation because the president rescinded those protections. And so they, they set up this DACA versus chip, which didn't, didn't need to be that way, as we've pointed out. They could have renewed chip months and months ago, um, but it it worked it really, essentially. It was really good messaging. It, it, really good. Good I mean, messaging yeah. by the Republicans. It was Republicans. really good yes. messaging by the Republicans because they were like, you know, A they were just that worked. <laughs> it was like no what no. If you heard an interview, you read an interview. No matter what the question was about anything else, they were relentlessly on message. They said we are protecting nine million American children who need health care, and the Democrats are protecting illegal immigrants. But and no that's what, what it just. That, and it was a very, that's one reason that the shutdown was so brief. Right. And it's really an example of whoever has the simplest message, even if it's misleading, wins. Yeah, because, but you could also, I mean, mm -hmm. you could also, I mean, I, I did hear some people arguing, though, that it wasn't quite as good for, for Republicans as it seemed because February. they only got right. Because they, <laughs> they, I mean, so basically they don't have CHIP as a bargaining tool anymore, and they only got three weeks of spending. And so when our next fight comes around in just, what is it, two and a half weeks, three weeks now, was it just Monday? 
that yeah, okay. just Monday. I can remember it was this week or last week. And but... This has been the longest <laughs> week. <laughs> so, I mean, so like, um, you know, they still have community health centers in there, but they can't really use CHIP in the same way as they, you know, as they did in this last so betting it, fight. Although right. Democrats have been, have been telling me, um, staffers sort of uh, behind the scenes, uh, that it, it is sort of a mixed situation for Democrats. So Democrats are rushing out and, and trying to say, we put chip off the table as a hostage we save chip and republicans are saying the same thing um but because but it was bipartisan of course but for it's democrats now when there were multiple issues at play they could argue that it wasn't all about immigration which is a difficult message for democrats and now because immigration is really the main thing left on the table, even though we have community health centers, we have these other things, that makes it vulnerable for these red state Democrats who are up for re-election. Well, before we get to the other things that weren't in the bill, let's talk for a minute about some of the other things that were in the bill. They very quietly snuck in a couple of delays of these controversial taxes, the health care taxes that help fund the Affordable Care Act. Because they, they hadn't cut taxes in two whole weeks. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. After the tax cuts come some more tax cuts. Well, well I mean, so they're they, not that controversial. In this. They, they were surprised that they ended up here and now and that it was this fast because there was a committee process going on and there was talks. And we should, we should say it what these the, taxes the, are. The Cadillac tax. Tax, which is the so-called Cadillac tax, which is the tax on high, uh, you know, sort of very generous health plans, including some of the union ones. That was a two-year or one year? That was a two-year suspension. I think they were all right? two years. No, one, one delayed till oh. 2022. Right. And then it, the yeah, health it, was insurance. Already, it was already delayed. They just extended right. the delay. It's, yeah. it's never been in effect and it, it's not about to be. Um, the health insurance tax, I believe, was suspended for one more year. Is that right? I think, I think that, that one was a one-year one. Yeah, that was just next year, right. I think. And then the the, the medical device, medical device also got a two year, two year, and that's and that one they actually had briefly had been suspended. They got put into effect, and now it's suspended again. And they've been relentless. They've been really a powerful lobby on this. They are been you know no matter it. Remember in the in the winter when we had one repeal bill after another, and they were getting skinnier and skinnier and medical skinnier. But the medical device always, always in there. there. Yeah. Um, well, so, I think part of it was there was always bipartisan support for that because you just look at the Dems that are from states with lots of Minnesota. medical manufacturing, and so which it's is not, mostly Massachusetts and Minnesota. Right. right true. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's sort of a regional issue in that sense. Right. So I think I don't think any of us were surprised to see those taxes suspended again. I think we were surprised to see them go last week this quickly, one of the few pieces of sort of policy on a three-week bill. But I think it's also not an accident that they tacked that on once they found out that CHIP was going to be revenue neutral. So they had been saying, you know, we can't have more deficit, we can't have more deficit, CHIP has this big cost. Oh, CHIP doesn't have a cost anymore. Let's have... So CBO said that the tax delays would cost about $30 billion overall. So. Which okay. aren't still a little years. weird yes, to me. Years. It's still a little weird to me they didn't do a longer CHIP reauthorization because they could have made money if they had done it for a I decade. I was just going to say that. It would have helped offset the taxes. I'm right. supporting... So if they had done, we should I say. think they're saving it for later and they can use it later to do some reconciliation stuff. Ah, that, that, well, yeah. if they do reconciliation. If but, they do I mean, yes, I mean, I don't know that we've Possible. seen the end of CHIP this year. Senator Hatch yesterday said he is open to doing another four years to make it 10. That doesn't mean it's going to happen. Senator Hatch being open to it does not mean, I mean, they're just in such a mess up there. <laughs> <laughs> and Democrats are talking about making it permanent. I mean, what's confusing about CHIP, and we've been very, or I, I think we have been very careful in how we describe it, but not everybody has been very careful. It's actually 
authorized. The problem right. wasn't that the program wasn't authorized. The was problem just writing was, the check. Was that the funding had run out, and it's it's a different program from the rest of the spending that we're talking about and keeping the government open because it's a different class of spending. Um, community health centers the same thing. They're authorized, but um, but they're not there. Which which actually segue into so the things that didn't get done in this bill. It's I mean community health centers are the big ones, right? Yeah, in a sense, it was like even more surprising to me that community health centers didn't get funded because you know you look back at the history history of CHIP. And I think there were a few like short term patches when they didn't have the long term funding. But I don't I can't remember a time when that was true for community health centers. I mean, this has been something like championed by both sides. You even saw Republicans really talking a lot about well, basically trying to increase funding for community health centers by their defunding of Planned Parenthood and their health care bills. And so um, I think this has really dismayed a lot of advocates. And this affects like a ton of people. It's like one in 12 Americans, I think, that access care from these centers and most low income. Um, and a lot and, of people who get CHIP. So now we've reauthorized, or, you know, we, we've, we've refunded CHIP, but they, they may not have any place to go to get care. Yeah. And I talked to the uh, head of the uh, National Association of, of Community Health Care Centers this week, and he was saying this is starting to become a real problem with getting providers on board and, you know, worried about funding. So I think the thought is that this is probably going to happen in three weeks, um, but definitely a lot later than a lot of people had thought. Right. Because it's a problem for them not so much to, can I can I treat a patient today but it's a problem as they con as they sign contracts as they do staffing plans long long term I mean if you don't know what your budget is and you're running a medical center um, it is hard to figure out and you know a provider's going to want to know they're going to be paid next year and it, it just it's become um, sort of an operational problem rather than a, it's it's not like somebody can't go in and get see a doctor tomorrow. They can, but it it just creating dangerous hassles. Also, there's a residency program now at community health centers, which is the idea of you know rather than than train primary care doctors in hospitals where they're not going to practice, train them in outpatient settings. So there is a, a a health center training program, and you know match day for residents is the middle of March, and I don't the community health centers don't know if that if the program's going to be funded. It would be kind of awkward to you know to accept a residency with a community health center and then say sorry we didn't get the money, you don't have a residency. So you know that there there are issues with with being able to plan. But I agree with Paige. I think that if uh, on things that are going to get resolved in the next few weeks, I think the community health centers are high on that list of likely, uh, you know, nothing certain, but of things they're going to sort of, you know, roll up their sleeves and punch each other about. I don't think it's going to be CHCs. And the rest of the health care extenders, things like therapy caps, Medicare therapy caps. Um, I got a, an email yesterday about special diabetes programs. There's all these sort of smaller... Some rural, there's some that affect rural yeah. hospitals and critical care. And they tend to, to ride along with CHIP and community health centers, but now they've you know all been taken apart and the people who, who are pushing those programs are, are all upset. Uh, I don't know that we are sure that all of them get through because some of the ones like the therapy caps get fought about every year and there's sort of uh, you know, that's a more technical issue. Um, obviously, the, the patient advocates don't want caps. Yeah, this is this is a, a cap on Medicare to, spending right. on therapy. How, how much well, before therapy. you have to kick in for your yeah. your, your yeah. rehab therapy? I don't know the status of all of them. They usually ride as a package, and they do usually ride with chip. I, I mean, I think the assumption is 
they get extended and that they will get extended. I don't know that they get extended. All of them get extended in three weeks. I, don't, I think that they're worried about that. And then I, the, you know, the other issue that I'm, I'm watching, maybe some of you guys have a better idea of where this is at, but whether or not they delay the, the cuts to disproportionate share hospitals. And that's something, of course, that was supposed to go into effect under the ACA. And then it's been this ongoing problem in states that didn't expand Medicaid and the rural hospitals are left saying, hey, why are we undergoing these cuts? And we don't have the expanded Medicaid population. But Congress has voted like three times before to delay these cuts. And uh, but there was some guidance put out last summer about them. And I but I'm not sure, like, I think that's going to be some kind of issue in this next spending fight. But I, I don't have a great sense of this. You point know, it, of weather. It's, it's funny. Congress would normally spend, you know, the health committees would spend a lot of time on issues like this. But of course, last year was all about repeal and replace and sort of the regular work that they would normally do, like reauthorizing or refunding CHIP, um, didn't get done. And I think this is one of those issues that just hasn't been sort of, I mean, I know they've delayed it before, but it hasn't been litigated in the in the new world of health care. Um, but yeah, it's something right. else. And the other thing we're not hearing a word about is stabilization of the exchanges. We are not hearing about the Susan Collins uh, but promise. he promised. There, there's some chatter. There's some chatter. It's it's mostly coming up as as a way to argue that no one should trust Mitch McConnell ever again because he promised repeatedly that there would be votes on those bills. Not and, as publicly as he did have, on DACA. Correct. Correct. It and was pretty public. This is but it, yeah, it, it's still there was still more. sort of a strong reaction to uh, Susan Collins and Jeff Flake coming out and arguing that we should all take Mitch McConnell's word, considering what what's happened over the last few months, and but, also that even if they do it in the Senate, there's there's this thing called the House. <laughs> and the White <Yeah>. House. <laughs> Senate Dems are really soured toward this now because of the repeal of the individual mandate. They're very upset about that. So some some committee Dems told me, uh, particularly on the Murray bill, that they're insisting on some changes to that. And they're not really willing anymore to pass it as is because we're sort of in a different environment now than we were. Right. That was it's the not one just to- about the hurt yeah. feelings. It's that we're in a completely different place with the repeal of the individual mandate. So the original bill that was drafted to respond to problems over the summer makes no sense anymore and needs a complete rethink writing <laughs> right and, and senator alexander and senator murray who have both said that you know it's a bipartisan bill they actually have been working given how toxic washington is the two of them have actually been you know functioning um relatively speaking um and they have both said in the last few weeks that they wanted to take a look at it together and think about what has to be changed but i just don't see any you know there's nothing there right now well, meanwhile, Paige, in the in the new world of the ACA, you have a story this week about how um, even though the individual mandate doesn't really go away until 2019, it could go away for some people sooner, right? Yeah. Well, um, so, uh, so some sources at HHS had told me that they're working on this guidance, which would expand these hardship exemptions. Um, and I, my understanding is that council's reviewing it right now, and they were sort of running up against um, some legal problems and where they could go with it. And I also, it was unclear how much the IRS was involved because, of course, they're a big part of like these exemptions and they were part of all the previous guidance on what the exemptions would be. We should talk. We should um, tell people what what the hardship exemptions right. are. So, yeah, basically, it's like if you have either a financial or a personal reason that would make it really hard for you to buy health coverage. So it could be something that like, you wouldn't have to pay the penalty. Right. That you wouldn't have to pay the penalty. Right. So it could be like something like filing for bankruptcy or, um, you know, um, you know, having your your home foreclosed on or, you know, 
know, having uh, experiencing domestic violence or going through a divorce or something like that. So there's kind of this whole list of things. And a lot of this, you know, well, this really was all spelled out under the Obama administration. And I remember like at the time, there were a lot of AC advocates that were really concerned about making sure that there were sufficient hardship exemptions. I think um, I think it was Young Invincibles. I remember that this was like a big issue for them. Well, this and, was, I mean, there was a huge blow up. This was all in response to the if you like your plan, you yeah. can keep your plan. And it come come the fall of 2013, all these people discovered they couldn't keep their plan. Right. right. I mean, there was one there were already a lot of in that year in 2013, 2012, 2013, they listed a lot of these uh, exemptions that, that Paige just enumerated. And then during the whole blow up about keep your plan and you couldn't keep your plan in the um, they added this sort of miscellaneous catch-all, yeah, plus every anything else you can think of. I mean, the, it's pretty – the hardship exemptions as they currently exist are already pretty extensive. Um, but, of course, you had to sort of know about them and had to figure out – And you have to – some of them you right. have to apply for. Some yeah. of them are automatic. They, right. There's different categories. Of them. But right. I, so, I mean, whether they broaden them or it's you know, sort of making it easier, facilitating it, some kind of a default assumption that you're entitled. I mean, there are things they could do other than – I mean, they could broaden them and they could add more exemptions. They could also just treat them differently. I'm surprised, though, that they didn't do this last year. I would have thought right. that they would have done it for – I mean, I would have thought that would have been one of the first things. But they Especially thought they could repeal it. It's yeah. the last year of the mandate. Well, there are like three reasons why this feels like more of a political move to me than anything. And one is like we already said, the mandate's going to repe- be repealed next year anyway. The other is that these hardship exemptions were already extensively reviewed. And then the, the third reason is that basically the IRS has already said they're going to turn a blind eye if you turn it, if you file your tax return and you don't indicate that whether or not you had health coverage, they're still going to keep accepting those tax returns. I thought returns. they weren't. I thought that was 2019, the I oh, think. Yeah. Oh. But this is this is status quo. That was the same right. policy. It's, under. The same, it's well, not that you're off the hook. They can still penalize you. It's just a question of whether they're going to even process your tax return without that. So basically, they had planned to start rejecting these tax returns, but then early last year under the Trump administration, they basically said they were going to continue their practice of, you know, under the Obama administration of, of, of you know, continuing to accept the tax return. So... The, it, it just feels like a political move in a lot of, you know, in, in a lot of ways, because I think, you know, there are a lot of ways to get out of paying the penalty if you really need to get out of paying. The penalty and the Trump administration year. has created two more, which is the associated, the associated health plans, association health plans, which are, you know, they, that rule has come out. And then we're about to get the short term uh, plan, these catastrophic skinnier plans that you'll be able to have. So you have more choices. So the, the the mandate penalty becomes less of an issue if you can do these other things instead that'll be more affordable. Less less benefits, but lower premiums. Although we should also point out that there's two more tax filing seasons with the mandate, at least right now, because it ends in 2019, but you'll fill out your taxes this year for 2017 and then next year for 2018. So right. that would be different though, right? And for, to, to exempt, to, to they're two. I, I think legally they would be not being a lawyer, but I think they're two different things. One is how do you can you make it exempt or say you're not going to enforce the penalty for last year for 2017, which is the, the taxes we're preparing now. And then the other one going forward is how do you create more exemptions for 2018? I, I don't think they're the same. I think they would have to be two different legal ones. Well, and then another part of uh, of this, of course, is that a new secretary is now coming into HHS. And I think that's another reason that they've sort of been, they were, they, I had heard they were hoping to roll this out this week, and then they kind of postponed it. And 
the thought is that Alex Azar is going to come in and, and who knows, you know, he's going to obviously he's sort of the, the boss now. So uh, so we'll have to see what he, what might he says about the it. Sort of. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think he True. thinks he is the boss. Yeah. Yes. And, and we get to pat ourselves on the back for saying when he was nominated that his uh, his uh, nomination sail would sail through. And it pretty much did. Yep. I, mean, I don't think any, there was some debate, but I don't think anybody paid a lot of attention to it. In the end, there are what, six Democrats who voted. Um, six Democrats and an independent. An independent who, who so. voted for. And, and, you know, I think everybody sort of when he got nominated said, yeah, he's he's been here before. He knows how the, the department runs. Um, and I think Democrats very quietly said it could have been way worse. Right. And, you know, there was just two hearings in, in finance and help, and they, they were both quite predictable. Democrats tried to hit him on all the expected issues of being a former pharmaceutical executive and patent gaming and all this kind of drug price stuff and uh, and also on his uh, conservative views on women's health and reproductive rights, which I read about this week. Um, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't enough to put his confirmation in danger. Yeah, because you would not get a, you know, from the Democratic point of view, this is a man who has served in the government, has served in HHS, was well-liked when he was there. Yes, he's a conservative. They do not expect you know, Trump and Pence to put a liberal to run HHS. But after the, um, you know, what's gone on in that department with the instability and the price scandal and everything else, you know, this is a guy who knows how to run things. And I think the Democrats were perfectly, you know, as Julie said, and from their point of view, it was as good as they were going to get. I think uh, from the perspective of a lot of HHS staffers, too, they yeah. seem pretty positive on People it. Who, I mean, we are staff who work with him when he was there under the Bush administration had a Know, respectful relationship with him. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's talk about women's health for a minute. Um, uh, last week, which does feel like a year ago, uh, HHS released new regulations making it easier for healthcare personnel. And I am specifically not using the word healthcare professionals because this seems to apply to anyone who works in healthcare uh, to opt out of providing or supporting someone who's providing care to which they have a conscientious or moral objection. This is mostly, as they explained it, aimed at abortion. But there are also people who don't believe in certain forms of family planning. There's a question about whether it uh, about transgender care. Um, this is this was uh, similar to a conscience rule that was put out in 2008 by President George W. Bush um, that got rewritten in 2011 by the Obama administration. But some say it goes even further. Alice, you were just saying you you you've, you've written about this. Um, not so much about that uh, rollout, which unfortunately happened right as the shutdown was heating up and I just had to be running around Congress the whole time. Um, But I I wrote mostly about um, uh, Alex Azar's responses in his confirmation hearings and in the written questionnaires following about some of these issues and how Yes, he he's, seems pretty much in line with what this new office is pursuing at HHS. Well, I don't think they would have done it if he didn't agree, but they also think it's significant they did it before he got in. It does not have his fingerprints on it. So it, it was it is controversial. It was done under the acting secretary. It is now a fait accompli as he gets sworn in. And I'm going to do my extra credit a little bit early because it's along the same lines. It's a Politico story by Dan Diamond called Religious Activists on the Rise in Trump's Health Department. Basically details the mostly religious anti-abortion officials who are now in important former anti-abortion group officials who are now in important leadership roles at HHS and their agenda to make not just abortion but contraception and other other services um, less widely available, but also, you know, what what they say is, you know, less have the federal government be, you know, less pushing of them. I mean, this, you know, I've covered 
administrations changing, you know, Republican to Democrat and back and back and back. And, you know, clearly when the Republicans are in power, they tend to be more conservative on, on issues like abortion and family planning. But this seems to be, you know, sort of a new level, this new office, this new office in the Office of a, Civil a Rights. Mike Pensian level of <laughs> <laughs> religious conservatism. It is, it is, I mean, there, and, you know, as Dan laid out, there, there are a lot of um, career people who, you know, who don't tend to complain when these things change because they understand that when administrations change, things change. But but this seems to alarm them in ways that they haven't been alarmed before. Right. And I think we should also say that there already are federal. I mean, it's not like a lot of doctors in the United States have a gun to their head being forced to perform abortions. That is not the case. Um, There have been complaints. There have been complaints filed that that medical personnel do say they feel they are. I think they said 30 something. so far this year that their abortion contraception there there's some of the advocacy groups worry about um whether physicians would or other healthcare providers would be able to deny care and I do not and this is a concern I don't know that it's a how legitimate the concern is but there have been concerns raised can you not treat a kid if you're a pediatrician and their their parents are gay things like that um so it sort of codifies this, you know, it, it it elevates it to having its own office, its own set of rules. But I mean, the conscience, or there are conscious protections in federal law, there are conscious protections in state law. It is a big solution to what, you know, you can argue how much of a problem is there a problem. Um, we do sort of accept the idea that there are conscience rights, um, th- but this magnifies them. This, I, this is codifies them. Well, it's, it's regulatory. It's not. It's not statutory. But it, it de facto codifies them. It creates a bigger civil rights bureaucracy. It elevates them. One of the things that was really interesting to me, I covered the big fight in 2008, which actually stemmed from uh, a requirement that was misinterpreted by the board that certifies um, obstetrician gynecologists about you know whether or not they would have to, if not provide abortion services, refer for right. abortion services. Um, or refer for even contraception and or services. Sometimes, yes. There, were, there, was, uh, there was rather famously a, um, a doctor on one of the contraception advisory committees who would not prescribe contraception to un- his unmarried patients. Um, that was that was kind of a big to do. But it, I assumed that when the that when President Obama took office, they would just rescind the regulation um, that many people thought was an overreach. And instead, they didn't. They asked for a new round of public comment. And I think they got 300,000 comments. And then they put out, they actually rewrote the regulation because they said, as you were just saying, Joanne, there have been these laws on the books, there have been conscience laws on the books to protect mostly healthcare professionals from having to do things that violate their conscience. There'd never been really a framework for enforcing those laws. So they did their own framework. So, you know, when these people say, well, there's never been any way to enforce them, it's like, that's why the Obama administration rewrote the regulation. You may disagree with the way they rewrote it, but you can't say that there was no no framework for, for enforcement because there was. And 40-something states, 43 states, something like that have additional laws on their books. So it is not something that we haven't grappled with. Obviously, this administration feels that we have not grappled with it adequately and it needs to be elevated. That's what this new office is going to do. The breadth, we'll have to watch and see. I mean, the, the you know, as Julie pointed out, it's not just you providing the care, but are you going to refer? So... You walk into a doctor's office and they won't do, won't prescribe birth control. Are they going to tell you where you can get it and what you know, 
there are various degrees of what people object to. There's well, some, you there's, know. there's actually a big Supreme Court case coming up on this, uh, having to do with California's requirement for I think a pre- pregnancy care right. centers to there there I think a state law requires them to like post a notice saying that abortion and other serv- care and other services are available, and so that'll be really interesting going you know coming up because that sort of sort of gets to that question of how far can you go in in requiring people to refer. Right, and that's um, I think Maryland, I think there was a uh, case in Maryland recently that the clinics won that they they did not have the the, pre- the pregnancy crisis centers and these are the pre- the anti abortion centers that, that they did kind of advertise to, themselves right. as as abortion clinics. But, but, until- is, but there is a difference between if you walk into a community health clinic and you wanted to you know and they're not the same provider. They are these pregnancy crisis centers are anti-abortion. I mean, that's what they do. There's a slightly difference. Like if you go into an emergency room as a rape victim, can you get an, you know, can you get the, the, the morning the, after the pill kind of thing? I mean, they're, they're, they're different. They're, they're all part of conscience. They're not exactly the same thing legally. Right. And, and you know, of course, the, the difficulty comes not so much in the major metropolitan areas, but in the, the more remote areas where, you know, you know, don't have a lot of choice. Of where you're the only yeah. pharmacy in town. Exactly. And there are a lot of places right. where there's only one pharmacy. Right. Right. And and what happens when laws protecting patients' right to access care clash up against laws protecting the conscience of the providers? And that's that's something that, that, that this is this is not new. We're just re re talking about it again. Uh, and I'm sure we will talk about it again. But now we are going to wrap things up with our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently. They think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post all the links to these pieces on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. I've already done mine. Joanne, what is yours? Um, this is a piece in the Dallas uh, Dallas News, I believe the current name is, and it's by a reporter named Dana Brandon. It's not a big investigative piece. It's not a, a big project. It's just a spot story that caught my eye because it asks provocative questions, or at least made me have provocative questions. Um, it's a Catholic high school because of the flu activity in Dallas. The headline is Bishop Lynch High School having online school Thursday and Friday due to flu outbreak. So on one hand, you know, there's so much flu going around. If you keep kids home for a few days, maybe they won't get it or you, you know you have that or day spread it. or spread you know they won't spread it if you've you know that day when you've been sick and you're trying to figure out can I go back to school can I not go but you know you may still be contagious um, you, you it is a way of spreading of stopping to spread this flu if you don't have kids in this classroom on the other hand there's all sorts of equity class in this particular case the school had an online service online learning module every every kid had it but is that going to be the tr- you know there's a public health argument for canceling school and saying study at home online, but not every kid has a computer at home. So there's digital divide issues. There's daycare issues. You know, my perfectly healthy kid has to stay home and I'm a, you know, an hourly worker with no sick leave. What happens to that child that happened? That was that parent. So on one hand, there, there is a sort of interesting, you know, public health tool. We have a really bad flu outbreak. It is also a very vexing equity tool question, right? Alice. I was looking at a great piece in the Washington Post about the very rapid rise and just as rapid fall of the leader of uh, President Trump's uh, White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, which has been in charge of coordinating among more than a dozen federal agencies on how to address the opioid epidemic. And uh, a 24-year-old 
with no experience other than working on Trump's campaign, was put in charge of this. He ran a charity golf course once. Well, there you go. (laughs) Very qualified. So the Washington Post did a great job of digging into his resume because putting a a 24-year-old in charge of this massive, deadly epidemic response on the federal level. He was only in charge because the guy who, he had been the deputy, the guy who was in charge had to step down because of another scandal that was uncovered by the Washington Post. Exactly. And so (laughs) the Washington Post dug into this uh, young man's resume and found that uh, not only (laughs) does he have sort of a, a thin resume, but even the things that were on there were misrepresented and in some cases false. He lied about uh, completing a master's degree. Uh, He misrepresented his time at a New York law firm where he was dismissed for just not showing up to work. (laughs) So this was the (laughs) this was the person in charge. And he is stepping down once this has been revealed. And I think it's just uh, a great example of one, how hard the Trump administration has had a time of filling these roles. Very, you know, qualified professional people aren't really lining up for (laughs) jobs in the Trump administration. But also the uh, Trump administration has done so little in terms of spending or policy or strategy to address the opioid epidemic, despite it being a a major talking point. And this is just another example of sort of the unseriousness of of their efforts on this. I feel like the longer I cover like administrations, the more discouraged I am about like how hard it is to get quality people in government. Because a lot of times the quality people don't want to work in government. They want to work in private industry. (laughs) This guy was particularly. (laughs) What's the opposite of stellar? (laughs) So my story is from the Texas Tribune uh, by Marissa Evans. And it's actually just more uh, a series of stories that she's done about maternal mortality in Texas, which uh, there's a little bit of dispute about how much it's increased. But there's indication that it's increased a lot, perhaps even doubled between 2010 and 2012. Um, And there's been a lot of uh, increasing discussion in the state about this and why this is. Uh, There was a task force report back in October that showed that Texas women most at risk of dying after giving birth include black women over 40, unmarried women, women on Medicaid, uh, and a couple of other categories. Um, But uh, Marissa had a particularly interesting story about the state of Medicaid and how that's just a huge, huge problem for women in rural areas and a lot of hospitals are experiencing really big losses, of course, because they have a big Medicaid population. And, yet and of Medi- course, Texas didn't expand Medicaid. Correct. Me- Texas didn't expand Medicaid. So you have hospitals not only taking the hit from a lot of uninsured patients, they're also facing these disproportionate share hospital cuts. And then for the patients that do have Medicaid, Medicaid doesn't reimburse enough to really cover their costs for giving birth. And so a lot of hospitals are saying, hey, we can't afford this. Like, we actually can't do deliveries anymore. And that's forcing a lot of women in rural areas to have to travel really far distances. The article actually kind of made me cringe as someone who's gone through two deliveries myself. I can't imagine having to like drive 100 miles. Well, one of my children would have been born in the car if I had to drive 100 (laughs) miles to a hospital. So, But it's a really, really good series um, and definitely, um, you know, kind of gets to that conundrum that hospitals really find themselves in, uh, especially, you know, we have the state of, of a lot of states not having expanded Medicaid and then these impending cuts uh, for the disproportionate share hospitals. So great, great series. 
Okay, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We, of course, would also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Alice Olstein. PW underscore Cunningham. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>